This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. We're speaking today with the award-winning historian Simon Winchester about his new book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. It is a marvelous book, Simon, ranging across all 37 billion acres of the Earth's land surfaces and the 4,000-year history of the various uses to which those acres have been put. But maybe you can begin with your own acquisition of 123 and one quarter acres in Dutchess County, New York. Talk about the many survey lines and angles, geographical and geological, that framed and settled the real estate deal. I bought this piece of land in 1999 when I came back from Hong Kong. Basically, I bought a little cottage in the hamlet of Wasaic, which is at the end of the Betro North Line from Grand Central. And um, the hunter who came each winter to um, pick off some deer said one day to me that he uh, was tired of paying taxes and did I like would I buy the land from him? And so he came up with a very decent price, and so I found myself the owner of 123 and a bit acres of essentially useless, or it appeared to me rather useless land, because it was on the north-facing side of a of a mountain, and there were a couple of little rivers and so forth. It was pretty enough, but in terms of putting it to any good agricultural use, for instance, it, it had relatively little value, which is why it was so inexpensive. And to, in truthful, I didn't pay an awful lot of attention to it. It was just kept other people away. And I like solitude and ideal for a, a writing life. And then I sold the house and came up to where I live now, which is in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. But I hung on to the land. Just I had this sort of romantic thought that I might one day do something with it. And then the, the turning point came in 2011, when I became a citizen of this country. And that, all of a sudden, prompted me to think that I now owned a piece of the real estate of the United States. I was quite literally invested in this country. And so I started to go down, it's about 50 minutes from where I live now, and look at the land and, and try to see the trees and the rocks and the rivers and know something of its history. And I became completely fascinated by it. I used to be a geologist, at least that's what I got my degree in donkeys years ago. And so I was interested in how this land had formed. And obviously it had been as most most of the eastern part of North America is um, connected to Europe and all part of this initial thing, Pangaea and Gondwana land and all the rest of that stuff. So the rocks are pretty old and they've been twisted and tormented and burned and heated and compressed five or six hundred million years ago. And then they were uplifted and formed mountains and sort of shed the archaic seas in which they had grown up. And then there was vegetation and early animals and so forth. And then early human beings. And I was interested to see who those human beings were, if there were actually 
paper records. And so I went to the Duchess County for the archive and the museum, and obviously I found my uh, deed, the transfer of ownership from the man called Caesar Luria, who was a plumber from the Bronx who had owned it before me, and then the people that had sold it to him in the 1950s and 1930s and 20s, and the documents went back and back and back. I mean, they're very well kept in, in Poughkeepsie, which is where the archive is. And um, they became, they were printed, and they became rather crudely typewritten, and then the transfers were handwritten, and they became less frequent and less legible. And then, 17th century, way, way back, there were a few documents which sort of doesn't, didn't specifically mention my land, but the, the land in which the land was, my plot was situated. And they were no longer in the English language. They were in Dutch, reminding me that the Hudson River, discovered as it was by Henry Hudson, he was working in the service of the Dutch in, what was it, 1604, 1609. And um, he and his crew... Um, bought, if that's the right word to use, land from the local Native Americans who were Mohican. They were Lenape further south, down near New York City, Mohican where my land was, about 110 miles north of the city, and then north of Albany in the junction with the Mohawk River, they were Iroquois, although that's a French word and it's not a Native American word. But anyway, we're dealing in terms of my land with Mohican, and those transfers didn't have signatures on them. They had little drawings of um, a deer or a horns or something like that, and occasionally an X, because there was no written Mohican language at the time. So this set me to thinking about the concept of ownership. Clearly, I owned it, and Caesar Luria owned it, and all those other people in the 19th and 20th centuries owned it. But the Native Americans, with whom the Dutch explorers or intruders or white settlers or white invasives, whatever you might like to call them, the deals they did were with people, Mohicans, who had no concept of individual ownership. They would say later that communities owned the land. They presided over it. They superintended it. They grew things. They used it. But they didn't own it. Ownership was something which was peculiar to migrant white people who came here, well, we all know where they came from, but let's say specifically the Europeans, they came across the ocean charged with the idea that it was possible to own land because that whole concept of ownership had been born in Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries. So I thought this was something worthy of exploration. I was fascinated by my own land. So I put it to my editor in New York, I would like to do a book on how the concept of ownership changed from there being people for whom ownership, they would say things like, like you can't, you no more own the land than you can own the sea or the breeze. It belongs to everybody. It belongs to us all. It's the earth. It's our mother. We don't own our mother, but we look after our mother. And in return, our mother, we hope, looks after us. So how did that concept change to the contemporary concept? And how did that shape society and indeed shape the modern world? And my editor, Lady Sarah Nelson, said, it's a wonderful idea, but don't restrict it to the United States or to North America. Wander about 
all over the world. And so I did, and I went off to Australia and New Zealand and India and the Ukraine and Latvia and Scotland and learned as much as I could about what seems to me a fascinating and important concept, whether ownership is possible, and if it is, is it a good thing or not? Where do we get the idea of ownership, and and with it, what rights do ownership grant to the owner, and uh, how does that develop? I mean, that uh, I mean, really, the whole settlement of, of, of North America. I mean, the lust for land is the dominant leitmotif all the way through the history of this country. Well, it is. I mean, if I can quote, although it's not politically fashionable to do so these days, from Gone with the Wind. I mean, you remember that moment when Gerald O'Hara, riding his white horse, sees miserable-looking uh, Scarlet's standing moping and says, jumps off his horse and says, what's wrong? Oh, she says, I'm fed up. I can't remember which lover, Ashley or Wilkes or something, had turned his back on her. I'm going to leave. I'm leaving Tara. I'm going off and living an independent life. And he scolds her and he says, my girl, he said, don't be so ridiculous. You're not to even think of selling Tara because land is the only thing worth working for the only thing worth living for, the only thing worth fighting for, the only thing worth dying for, because land is the only thing that lasts. Well, as we'll perhaps discover later, that may not nowadays be true, thanks to climate change. But that basic thought that land is hugely important because it, they're not I was going to say they're not making more, any more of it, but that's not true either. But that was the belief anyway. And so if there's something which is inherently valuable and you own it, then you can take it to the bank as collateral, borrow money and do things, buy a car or refrigerator or whatever. It's the basis of all the capitalist systems. Well, where did it begin? I mean, it began in various um, places all over the world, but simply because I'm uh, English, I, I chose to look at its history in England itself. And it really began in the 14th and 15th century, somewhat informally. Now, large tracts of land, let's say Yorkshire or Dorset, were already notionally owned by feudal lords. They'd been given it by the king. And let me just go back a moment. The biggest landowner in the world today, without question, the individual anyway, is Queen Elizabeth II. She owns an immense proportion of that 29 or 39 billion acres that is the habitable portion of the world's surface. And she owns it in much the same way that other emperors and kings and royal personages around the world own it, because the early belief was that God owns the land, therefore the representative of God on earth be it an English king or a Chinese emperor or a Japanese emperor, they are the representatives and consequently they own the land and it is in their gift to hand it to people who they favour. And in large chunks in the early part of the uh, first millennium, English kings would give chunks that we now know as Dorset or Northumberland or wherever to favoured knights of the realm. And they were feudal lords and we peasantry, we paid fewer to them, we, we paid fealty to them. But looking at it in a, in a more granular level, in 
when you get, and regardless of who is the ultimate owner, the ultimate owner is the monarch, um, we come to, a, let's say, an English village, let's say somewhere in Wiltshire, south central England. You have a village of maybe 10 or 15 little thatched cottages, and they surround or lie to one side of a large expanse of land, which is held in common by all the villagers. It's common land. And that's what most land in England was or in a practical granular level. And that meant that the villagers, with this large expanse of grassland in front of them, a man that wanted to grow have his cows there could do so, and a man that wanted to grow turnips there that could do so, a man that wanted to have sheep or pigs or cabbages or lettuces or radishes or whatever, they'd all grow them and raise them wherever they wanted. And that led to what's nowadays known as the tragedy of the commons, because that's a very inefficient way to provide food for the villagers who live around it. And that wasn't so much of a problem in the early days of England, because the population was small enough that the efficiency of the agricultural system was relatively non-relevant. But come the 15th century, there are lots of people and they need to be fed. And if your village, you find the cows are eating all the turnips and the pigs are sort of snouting around in the lettuces, then it's a shambles and there isn't enough food. So the idea came about of what came to be known as enclosures. You would build walls on this big stretch of common land. You'd enclose it into strips. And on this strip A, farmer A would raise his cattle and on strip B, farmer B would plant his radishes and so on and so forth. And the cows would grow fat and the radishes would go plump and everyone was fat and happy. But the concept was then that the people who superintended these strips owned the strips. They were theirs. You couldn't, without permission, go onto farmer A's land or dig up farmer C's lettuce beds. And that was an informal arrangement initially. But in 1604, which is a sort of crucial year in the whole land story, it became formalised by an act of parliament in a village called Radipole in Dorset, very near the town of Dorchester, where, as it happens, I went to boarding school and where I used to miserably and limpingly used to do my cross-country runs. So I remember Radipole bitterly. But Radipole was where, in 1604, a notice was pinned to the church door saying that the common land of Radipole is going to be divided into seven privately owned pieces of land. If anyone objects, write to your MP, Palace of Westminster, London. Nobody did. And so those seven strips became privately owned. And the food production in Radipole suddenly skyrocketed and everyone was happy except for the people who used to have their pigs or sheep or lettuce or radishes on that land. And they, if they didn't own the land, were disgruntled and they were literally dispossessed. So in those early days, but this was the beginning of, I think there were ultimately 4,000 Enclosures Acts all over Britain, such that most of Britain was then a sort of patchwork of privately owned small holdings. And the consequence of the in Radipole and then all over the country was a huge number of dispossessed people. So what did they do? Well, they either stayed and were disgruntled and unhappy, or they began migrating to the cities, which were beginning to grow. 
had come the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the middle of the 18th century. The cities like Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool and so forth began to grow very rapidly, not least because all these grumpy people from the countryside came and threw their lot in with urban life or else, and this is the important thing in the story beyond England, they got onto the boats and went to the New World, either the New World in the North, North and South America, or the New World in the Antipodes, Australia and New Zealand. And they were infected with this intellectual notion that land was there for the taking. They could, in other words, if they found any people there, whether they were Mohicans or Iroquois or Cherokee or whatever, or Aboriginals or Maoris in the Antipodes, they could take their land, they could dispossess them. And so the whole cycle of unfairness, which is attendant upon the idea of the ownership of land, was exported from Britain in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. I mean, and, and the land in, let's say, Massachusetts and Virginia is a gift from the king of of England, right? To... Ultimately, ultimately it is. And we own it even today. I mean, if, you, if I, yeah. this piece of land that I'm sitting on now, 75 acres or the 125 down in Dutchess County, if I go really far, far, far back um, and get ancient title documents, I will find that it was, you're quite right, um, it was a colony, of course, here in Virginia and Massachusetts. The ultimate owner is the English monarch and my ownership is what's called fee simple. Fee simple means to all intents and purposes I own it. But you've got to remember that if you don't pay your taxes, then it's taken away. So do you own it or does Dutchess County own it? And if Dutchess County for some obscure reason doesn't pay its taxes, it would go back to New York State. And if for some reason New York State defaulted, theoretically in theory only, it could be repossessed by the ultimate owner, which is the English monarch. So I own it in fee simple, which means it gives me a bunch of rights. The principal right, according to um, lawyers, I mean, I can mine it, I can chop the wood down, I can sell it, I can rent it, I can transfer it to somebody else. I have all those rights. But the ultimate right is I can, if I choose, tell other people to get off it. This is my land, and if you or anyone else, to my irritation, annoyance, or in defiance of my order, come and live on it, or be on it, or are on it, I can call the local law enforcement people and tell you that you're illegal. That the notion of trespass is something which is central to my ownership, and I don't want people to think it's me alone. I mean, it's everyone. Trespass is a hugely important component. And how various societies and countries interpret trespass is, to me, a fascinating subset of the fascinations about land in general. But also your, your fee simple, your titular ownership, allows you to exploit and, and uh, explore and use the land. And, and th this is something that the Americans... Uh, very good at from the beginning. I mean, the, the Puritans uh, find that the natural world is filled with what they called vendable wonders, animal, vegetable, and mineral. And, and so 
we now have a whole different attitude toward the use of the land than the one that was in the minds of the Indians. Indeed. I mean, the Indians, and this is true in North America, and it was abundantly true too, in Australia, for instance, when um, Captain Cook arrived in Botany Depp Bay in the, in the 18th century, he found that the Indians were tending, or the Aboriginals in Australia, and indeed the Maori in New Zealand, tending to the land with an extraordinary degree of solicitude, if you like. There were alleys and gardens and flower beds and things that, quote, savages, unquote, were not supposed to have. There was a, a wisdom and a tenderness in the way that the Wampanoag, for instance, I mean, the people that lived in eastern Massachusetts, uh, I've just come back from Martha's Vineyard. I mean, they're now penned into a little corner of the far west of Martha's Vineyard. They ran the whole island, ran much of eastern Massachusetts, and they ran it in a very, in a botanical sense, in a in, a, in terms of sustainability, in a much more responsible way than we run it now. Because what do we do? We, we regard the earth as something to, to take those vendable items of vendable goodness and extract from it. The Indians didn't regard the land as central to an extractive industry. It was something, as I go back to the original point, an Aboriginal point, the earth is our mother. We take care of her she takes care of us. And that's a signal difference. And once we had started in earnest to take the land from them, occasionally buying it, but more than often simply taking it or turfing the Aboriginals off it in one form or another, then what did we do? We started to extract things from it initially, relatively responsibly, but not today. And you've only got to look at the extraction of water from the West and the rise of industrial farming in this country and strip mining in West Virginia and uh, the gigantic mines in, I mean, I'm not being naive, of course, this is central to a manufacturing economy, but it is a very different and in the long run, somewhat irresponsible way to manage the land. You mention in another chapter, you talk at the edges of worlds, you talk, there are 317 land borders in the world. And how do we get the idea of borders? And, and you say that most of these are invented in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And how do we go about that? I mean, how do we draw border lines and, and how do we make maps? Oh, well, this is a very big subject, but I'll... I, um... I know it is. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I mean, your whole book is wonderful. I mean, I, uh, we, we could talk for an hour about any I'm one afraid of we could bore everybody rigid. But, um, well, let me first of all say that I mean, I, ever since I crossed my first border and saw border guards and red and white bowls going across roads and passport checks and all that sort of thing, I became sort of fascinated. Where did the first international border um, have its being? Well, in Europe these days, it's said to be the border of Andorra, I think, a little country in the Pyrenees. But stepping back a bit, I think probably if you accept that the early civilizations, once humankind had left Olduvai and had come down to Cape Good Hope and gone north to Western Europe, you've got the Nile civilization, you've got the Mesopotamian civilization, you have the Indus 
civilization and then the Yellow River civilization. So five sort of loci of civilization. If they sort of over time expand like uh, penicillin in a Petri dish, where are the first two that meet? And I've always thought that the Arab civilization spreading eastwards from the Nile would encounter the if you like, the Persian or the Mesopotamian civilization spreading west or southwest from Mesopotamia, and they would hit each other, two very different groups of people, different culturally, different genetically, different in all in appearance and so forth. They'd meet each other in the salt marshes of southwestern uh, uh, Iraq, so near Basra, in other words, which, of course, was a central city in the Iran-Iraq war. But that's in a way, by the by, where, where did the first border in the world, and by that I don't mean international border or frontier, but an actual boundary between two individuals, two peoples. And I go back to my own country, England, and think about Wiltshire, where there's quite a lot of archaeological evidence to support what I'm going to describe. If you have two farmers who maybe know each other, they're rivals, they may be relatives, who knows, but they live within sight of one another. And one is on the bottom lands of an alluvial plain, and the other is tending his sheep or raising his whatever uh, vegetables on a hillside uh, rising out of this alluvial plain. Farmer A um, has discovered the basic principle of agriculture. You dig a little hole in the ground, you sprinkle in seeds, it grows, you make a line of these um, little holes, you have a line of crops, you have enough bounty to feed your family and maybe sell or give away or barter one or two, and the beginnings of agriculture begin. Well, this idea of digging a furrow, you want to dig lots of furrows to make more and more of these, whatever your crop is, wheat or carrots or whatever. And you use, in those early days, and we're talking about 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC or so, a hardened stick, might have a metal tip to it these days, which is called a cashron, a cashron. So using this stick, you draw a furrow, and then you have another one parallel to it and another parallel to that. And let us say that they're all trending north-south, whereas your farmer friend to your right-hand side, the one on the hill, his furrows, for reasons of efficiency, follow the contour lines rather than try to traverse the contours. So they're all aligned, let's say, not north-south, but northwest-southeast. And where they intersect, rather like ripples when you throw two stones into a pond, where they intersect, interfere with one another, you can then put a line of sticks or a wattle fence or a hedge or a ha-ha, a little trench or something like that. And that becomes the dividing line, the boundary, the border between these two adjoining pieces of land. And if one has carrots and one has cabbages, there's a, a delineation marked physically for everyone to see and to know and respect. And that idea of boundaries, which, as I say, you can see in the archaeological evidence in Wiltshire, will then expand itself to boundaries, not just between individuals and individual farms, but between individual villages and then individual let's call them administrative units, prefectures or counties, and then ultimately between countries. And um, this has fascinated me for a long time, as I, as I mentioned. And I, if I can just point out one of the sort of tragic consequences of the boundary drawing, 
Um, I used to live in India for quite a long time. And when the first time I went there, I, I drove my car from London, where I lived at the time, to Delhi in a, a Volvo that I had. And back in those days, you could cross, cross Afghanistan with consummate ease. And so I would holiday in cities like Herat and Kandahar and Kabul and so on and so forth, cross the Khyber Pass, um, and then go through Pakistan, through Peshawar and Lahore, and then cross into India. And because India and Pakistan had been already at war several times, the border crossing there was pretty fierce, uh, pretty tough, you know, the customs and military and so forth. Uh, and then I drove on to Delhi. So I began to be very interested in that border. And its its origins are quite extraordinary. Go back to 1948, 47 rather, which is the year that it was decided to give India her independence. Britain finally decided that after all the agitation, we should leave. And so appointed Lord Mountbatten to be the final viceroy and gave him a very, very short timetable. He said, basically, we're going to leave by, he came sometime in May, we're going to leave by August the 15th, 1947. Mahatma Gandhi, who he saw a lot of, said, well, of course, you're going to keep India united, one gigantic country from the Khyber Pass right over to the border with Burma. And uh, that's what Mountbatten wanted, and that's what uh, the Mahatma wanted. But Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League, said, oh, no, that's not going to happen. The Muslims have to have their own homeland. We need to create two entities, one on the west of India, which we will call Pakistan from the acronym Punjab, Afghan, Kashmir, Istan, and one on the other side, which will be East Pakistan, dividing Bengal. And there was a lot of argy-bargy about this, but in the end, Manhattan said, OK, well, if that's what you want, that's what you'll have, but we'll have to create a border. And so he rang up in London, an old friend of his, a perfectly nice, harmless, erudite civil servant called Sir Cyril Radcliffe, who had never been to India and indeed had never traveled east of Paris and said, I've got a job for you. I want you to create a boundary between this new country to be called Pakistan and the India to which we will grant independence in mid-August. And um, you know, a sum of money was offered and uh, Cyril Radcliffe came over immediately, as so many Westerners do when you arrive in India, got ill, intestinal troubles was sent up to the relative cool of Simla, the, the summer capital in the, in the foothills of the Himalayas, was given a staff of um, four or six men uh, who all hated each other, as in essentially refused to work with each other, and um, was given some out-of-date maps of the Punjab and Bengal, but let's just concentrate on the Punjab, and um, some demographic figures who lived in what village, what was the makeup of each village, and... Um, drew with his Parker fountain pen a, a line which on the land is 1,700 wiggling, squiggling miles long, dividing village from village, from the sea, from the Karachi effectively, up into the Himalayas and Kashmir. And that would become the border between on the west side, Islamic Republic of Pakistan, and on the east side, the secular Republic of India. So, he packed his bags and went home, and Mountbatten declared independence on the 15th, announced the borders three days later, and all 
hell broke loose. Thousands and thousands of Muslims, now trapped as they saw it in India, fled as fast as they could to cross the border into what they believed was the safety of Pakistan. And such Hindus as were in Pakistan, fearing for their lives, joined forces with a third religious group, which were the Sikhs who lived around the city of Amritsar, and fled into India. And in doing so, when they encountered each other, they engaged in an orgy of violence, which left two million people dead. I mean, an extraordinary... I know, I know. I I know quite a lot about that. It's an awful, bloody mess. Terrible. All right, Simon, I mean, I think... God, there's so many things in this book that I would like to talk about, but let, let, let's talk somewhat uh, more ab- about the American experience. I mean, you have a chapter called The Red Territory. And in that, you, you talk about, you know, the ongoing uh, elimination of, of, of the Indians. I mean, just right across the whole continent. And you, you also point out that something called the Proclamation Line in 1763, which was ordered by King George III, forbidding the colonists on the eastern shores to occupy land west of the Appalachian Mountains in the Ohio Valley. And that was really one of the causes of the American Revolution. Indeed it was. I mean, there's this uh, suggestion that no um, colonists could settle west of this uh, line which ran down the spine of the Appalachians, indeed vexed the colonists who, as has been central to the American spirit ever since, has been dominated by the manifest destiny of ultimately settling the entire country. So the uh, the, uh, no, the full of noble intentions of being kind, if you like, to Native Americans to whom the colonists had not initially been kind, I suppose one can applaud King George for declaring this, but it was honoured more in the breach, quite frankly, and land ultimately was settled in states west of that line, pretty rapidly. And of course, once uh, America had achieved its independence, then there was no stopping anybody. But what happens when you come across Native American peoples who stand in your way and the the, the celebrated or the most um, notorious, the infamous um, meetings were in the American Southeast, where settlers came across those who they called the civilized tribes. These were people like the Cherokee and the Seminole who had advanced uh, systems of government. They had villages. and I mean, it sounds even condescending to use that phrase, the civilized tribes. They had, although they learned this largely from, uh, from incoming settlers, they took slaves ultimately. And they were competition, if you like, for the coming white settlers. And so it was agreed, 1820s, that they should be moved and uh, moved westwards now to the Mississippi and beyond the Mississippi into the then somewhat uninhabited, or at least uninhabited by white people, uh, parts of the central 
part of the United States. And um, those were the notorious trails of tears involving the five, quote, civilized tribes, you know, 70 or 80,000 people who were bundled in long columns, columns or they had um, not Conestoga wagons, but ox carts, and they were guarded by soldiers to make sure they, they didn't stray. And then they were left to fend for themselves in these new designated tribal areas. And essentially, what were the outskirts, the eastern part of what is now the state of Oklahoma? But of course, these were the, the, the memorable ones. The non-memorable ones include, for instance, the Mohicans that uh, inhabited the land that I ultimately bought. What happened to them? Well, there are no Mohicans here any longer in this part of the United States. Where are they? They're in Wisconsin for the same reason. The people who grew up 250 years ago in the landscape that I can see from my window as I talk to you have been dispossessed from that land and moved to central, a fairly bleak part of rural Wisconsin. And this has happened to all sorts of Native Americans. Only the most celebrated are memorialized by this phrase, the Trail of Tears. Yes, and I mean, there's something like 350 treaties between the Indians and the federal American government. None of them have been honored. I mean, all, the, the, all broken, all broken, all, all broken. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a savage, savage story. And uh, so consider then in the latter part of the, of the 19th century, you've now got a situation where most Native Americans have been cleared out. This has been literal ethnic cleansing. Uh, to, uh, and they're in places like North Dakota and uh, Eastern Oklahoma hadn't been named, but it was the eastern part of what is now Oklahoma. But there was an area, a sort of T-shaped area in central, what we'll now call Oklahoma, that hadn't been assigned to any of these, quote, civilized tribes. And someone had the bright idea that this land should be available for white settlement. And there were so many people now, we're talking about 1889, so many people. And there was a press on all the states east of the Mississippi. So why not let white people settle that? And so it was agreed that on the 22nd of April, 1889, if I have the date right, there would be the first of the famous Oklahoma land runs. And people were invited to come and wait on the borders of this T-shaped, about two million acres. And um, at a signal, noon, bugles blown by cavalry officers or shots fired in the air, these people who were waiting either on the Kansas border to the north or the Arkansas border to the east would suddenly gallop or run with their horses or whatever as fast as they possibly could until they came across a piece of land that to them looked attractive or had potential for settlement or agriculture and leap off their horses, plant their claim flags that they'd already been given into the land. And there were U.S. government claim field offices set up in tents. They would pay their $5 and that land would be theirs. It would own, they would own it free and clear. Well, what was it, 160 acres? Well, it could be a quarter section. It depends how much you could afford. But yeah, it was, it was but $5 it was cheap. for a 
Oh, yeah. So cheap. I mean, for a full <laughs> section, 640 acres, you get it for 20 bucks. I mean, so yeah. the, the place they did this in earnest, with there was a railway line running from Galveston up to Chicago, bringing cattle up to the slaughterhouses. And it ran across this piece of land. And there was a station stop. There was nothing other than a water tank for locomotives to fill up with water. And it was called after the name of a Kansas cattle baron, Guthrie. He was obviously a Scotsman. So Guthrie existed, but no one lived there. And this happened to be, it was just south of the Cimarron River, particularly attractive. It was well watered, the grass was lush. And so a huge number of people said, this is where we want to be. And so Guthrie, Oklahoma, became the fastest growing city, I believe, in American history. At 6 a.m. on the morning of the 22nd of April, Guthrie's population was zero. At 6 p.m., its population was 15,000. There was just <laughs> row upon row of hastily put up tents and claim flags, but they got together and they organized themselves so quickly, such that by the next morning, a north-southbound street, which still exists, called Division Street, had been mapped out, an east-west street, called Oklahoma Street, and they had the telegraph within a week. The railway, of course, gave them access to the telegraph line. They had a station, of course. And um, they had asphalt roads within three weeks. They had three newspapers within a month. And it was a settled city with a Belgian architect who built these astonishingly strong sandstone buildings, which became near impossible to demolish. They're still there still standing in Guthrie, Oklahoma, which was briefly the state capital until the people that lived somewhat to the south in Oklahoma City got somewhat churlish about it and said, no, we want to be capital. And they stole the state crest from Guthrie and Guthrie slumped into desuetude. And the person that had planned the city, and there was some planning, who was a Canadian, then left Guthrie and said, my job is done here. He and his wife went west found a plot of land in this newfangled settlement called Los Angeles, thought that this would be an appropriate place to live, and they named it Hollywood. Talk about, uh, just briefly, getting toward the end, uh, Simon, but you, you have another chapter which is called Accumulation of Space. I didn't realize how much land in the United States is owned privately by big landlord landholders, including Bill Gates and, and Ted Turner and, and John Malone. Say, say something about that. Yes. Well, the big landowners, uh, Malone and Ted Turner, both, of course, television barons, they have bought, in Ted Turner's case, it's mostly in the American West, and he has done some good. I mean, that sounds rather patronizing to say so. He's very keen on restoring uh, the herds of the American bison, which had been decimated in the 19th century by people coming down from Chicago and shooting at them uh, to the astonishment of the Native Americans from railway trains. I mean, a terrible slaughter of their foodstuff. So bison are coming back thanks to a landowner. Um, John Malone owns a huge amount more in the east, particularly in Maine, oddly enough, and he owns, and they're worried that his superintendency of the big forests in Maine may not be so uh, congenial as Ted Turner's um, 
his, his attitude towards his Western holdings. Um, the big villains of the piece, though, are those who bought land simply for, for sport, if I can put it that way, and try to keep people off the land, to, in other words, to invoke the laws of trespass to shoo people away. And the most notorious of these are a pair of, I don't want to offend anybody, but ultra-right-wing evangelical Christians and followers of the former president. Uh, they're called the Wilkes Brothers, and they grew up in far west Texas, and they, in their youth, created some of the chemicals that go into uh, making fracking liquids and made a huge amount of money, and they, they were very successful. And then the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund bought the pair of them out for $4.5 billion. So all of a sudden, these two young Christian evangelical right-wingers had $2.5 billion each to spend pocket money, and they decided land because probably they listened to the guy with the wind man, Jared O'Hara, saying there's nothing, it's the only thing that lasts. So they bought, at the time of doing this broadcast, um, about 700,000 acres in, the, in Montana and Wyoming and Idaho, but they don't let people on it. And they put up security fences and barriers and lights and cameras and so forth. And people in the West who have been accustomed to say, yes, there are big landowners here, but they have a generally sort of tolerant attitude to people like us who want to come and walk or hike or fish or whatever. The Wilkes brothers do not. So they're being very dog in mangerish about that, their land holdings, which to my way of thinking is a bad thing. In your epilogue, you say, yet now the land is dr drowning. I mean, it is not the stable asset that will last forever. And you say, the future is a foreign country. They will do things differently there. Do you have any guess at, at the future and how differently we might be doing things? The first thing to say, obviously, is that the land is now, as Gerald O'Hara was unaware, is disappearing. It's disappearing slowly in the eastern United States. In the last decade, a mere 13,000 acres has been lost to sea level rise, but incidents like the collapse of that building in Surfside in Florida are just the beginning of the erosion of the east coast of this country. And so people are moving to higher ground. I mean, New York City being a place that is going to be in turmoil as a result of that and the flooding of the subways and so forth. It's just coming down the road, as it were. Whole countries are facing this now, places that we care little for, Kiribati, Tuvalu, out in the, in the Pacific, low-lying coral atolls. Already the New Zealand uh, is offering climate refugee status to people who say, I cannot live in Kiribati or Tuvalu anymore because we are drowning. So that land is ultimately going to disappear, as it is in places like Bangladesh, the low-lying, what's called 24 Sundarbans in southern Bangladesh. So land is, is disappearing, and we're going to have to reevaluate our attitude towards it. And I, it's one of the reasons that, oddly enough, most of the big American landowners, and this includes Bill Gates, no longer buy coastal land in any large quantities. They buy land in the middle, which is certainly not going to flood in the lifetime of either them or their descendants many generations hence. But with land becoming less and less um, settleable, habitable, if you like, 
its price is going to go up. So who owns it? Do individuals own it? Do communities own it? Well, particularly here in the eastern United States, communities are beginning to shame people and say to them, look, don't own land. Let this village own it. Let us return to the ways of the villages, let's say, in Wiltshire in the 10th century. We all look after it. It looks after us. Why don't we look after it and own it in common rather than individually? And I suspect that, in large measure, is what's going to happen. Well, thank you. I mean, you... you, you uh... You actually begin the book with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who says, you are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. I, and thank you very much, uh, Simon, for speaking with us. We've been speaking today with Simon Winchester, author of his new and very fine book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. It's always a pleasure. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.